<laughs> Quit out, Ghost Island Media. Hey guys, it's Nature Nate. Before we start the episode, just wanted to say I hope you're all well. Hope you're safe. We wanted to share a little bit more about our sponsor who's trying to help the world right now with their work. This pandemic has affected everyone. To get through this, we all need to work together. Cypress River Advisors, with their deep cross-border sourcing and manufacturing knowledge, are providing PPEs for free to medical professionals and communities in need. They're providing protective equipment in New York, California, Michigan, and Japan. They're also providing data visualizations to help make policymakers and the public understand the real impacts of the pandemic. For more information, go to cypressriveradvisors.com COVID-19. All right, now on to the episode. On a bright and beautiful day on the Stanford campus, I walked inside of a really well-designed and clean building. And deep, deep into the basement we went, where we encountered a young scientist, Dr. Antonio Bachling. <laughs> he took us deep into his laboratory and went inside of his closed chamber. Nervous with excitement, with his white lab coat, big black gloves, he reached inside of a vacuum-sealed box and pulled out a small plastic disc. And on that disc, there was a single black droplet of a mysterious substance. He called it vanadium. And this tiny speck of chemicals might just save our planet. Hi, I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not, Why Not, a sustainability science show on how not to save the environment. I'm an environmental researcher based in Taiwan, working on energy, ocean, and waste issues. Today, we're going to have a conversation with battery man, Dr. Antonio Bachlig. First, I want to say there are a million ideas out there. What really excites me about this space is just the number of different ways that you can do it. Antonio is a postdoc at Stanford in the Material Science and Engineering Department, which is also where he got his PhD. He's working in the group of Professor William Chu, specifically on the chemistries of flow batteries. Now, why should we care about batteries? Well, we care about batteries because we care about renewable energy. Right now, with fossil fuels, we get stable, consistent power 24-7. In order to switch away from fossil fuels to renewables, we need a way to handle the intermittency, the differences in energy output from wind and solar. It's not possible to get solar energy at night. So we need ways to store that energy. And we can't just use traditional batteries. We can't use a double A to store the power of a solar panel. We need to come up with new types of batteries and new chemistries of batteries. And that's what Dr. Bachleg is working on, and that's what we're going to talk with him about today. The subtle yet crucial infrastructure that we need to build a renewable future. Batteries. The B word. So, um, how are you doing, Antonio? Anthony? What should I call you? <laughs> you can call me Antonio. Antonio, yeah. okay. Thank you. Yeah. So, Antonio, nice to meet you. Yeah. yeah, nice to meet you too. How would you describe yourself, Antonio? Oh, so I'm currently a postdoc at Stanford Material Science and Engineering Department. I'm working on next generation batteries using different chemistries. And I would say getting here, I've really explored a lot of different 
areas. I did my undergraduate in chemistry and physics. I'm now in the material science and engineering department. We have collaborations with other groups. And so it's a huge collaborative multidisciplinary effort in order to make a new type of battery. Okay. Why are batteries exciting? I think most people think about batteries. They think about their phone, think about their remote. Hopefully now they're thinking about their car. What drew you to batteries? What was interesting about batteries? So actually, I have to say, when I first started learning about batteries, I thought they were boring. I thought they're just old technology. Just some Duracells, some AA, AAA, done, got it. Yeah, right. It's not like, how is this the future? Now, that was in around 2011, 2012, really before a lot of the interest had taken off in batteries. But essentially, I was, I was working at the time. I was planning to go back to grad school and trying to figure out what I wanted to work on in grad school because I really cared about energy, climate change. I wanted to work on something that would be significant for the future there. And I, what I read at the time was that wind and solar were already growing. The technology was already there, but the intermittency of them was recognized as a problem then. And really, we're seeing that in a lot of different places now where you know, solar and wind, you have it when the sun shines, when the wind blows, but you don't have it when those things aren't happening. And so for a grid where you have to meet supply and demand at every point in time, that can be an issue as you just increase the amount of solar and wind on the grid. We're seeing that in California. We're seeing that in Hawaii, where I grew up. Well, how do you manage the grid when right at sunset or when you don't have wind for a long period of time? How is the grid normally managed? You know, I think people just think I turn on the light, power comes, there's some magic place outside of town, maybe they emit some smoke or some clouds or something, and it gives me power. But I, I don't think a lot of people really understand, you know, what is what is the thought process that goes into power generation currently, or maybe, you know, for the past 50 years or something? Yeah, power generation is extremely complicated and amazing, right? It was I forget which body, but they deemed it the engineering marvel of the last century. Sure, sure. Um, So power grids were designed to produce and consume electricity immediately, just to always have production match consumption. There are some caveats to that, but just as a general level, we have very little storage on the grid. And so demand fluctuates throughout the day. In California, we have these demand peaks where overnight demand is very low. People are sleeping. Only a few late night gamers, you know. (laughs) And then, you know, as people wake up, demand of electricity starts to climb. It's high in the day. And usually actually it kind of peaks right in the evening because people come home and they turn on all their appliances. You're turning on your lights. Doing your laundry, doing your microwave, doing your TV, you know, just powering up. Powering up to then power down. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... In California, there's the California Independent System Operator. It's called CAISO. And their job is essentially to make sure the grid is operating within its bounds all the time and to match supply and demand. You know, we have this deregulated energy system where you have all these utilities and other independent power producers producing power from power plants. So those could be natural gas power plants, coal power plants, although they have been declining in the U.S. Thankfully. Thankfully, thankfully de- absolutely, declining. Absolutely, because of the massive amounts of pollutants that they put out. And then now wind and solar are, are rising as well. You know, there's hydro generation, there's nuclear generation. So you could have any number of different sources of power contributing power to the grid. They all have certain amount of costs. So 
Basically, there's this whole system that the Kaiso has to determine which one to use at any given time, and it's complicated, but essentially they're trying to use the lowest cost energy at any given time. Is this like an algorithm? Is this like a person? Is there like a person, sort of like the Matrix, sitting with all these screens, and they're just saying, all right, turn on the nuclear, turn on the gas, <laughs> turn on the hydro. I mean, what's is like a conductor in an orchestra? You know, how, how does it... Do you know how it works? You've been I, there? I've, I've been to a control center in a different state. And yeah, I mean, it's it's not just one person. There's multiple people and they're just they're just monitoring it very closely just to make sure every minute of the day that these things are kept within bounds. And there's spinning reserves and non-spinning. There's all these classifications of different power plants that has on all the time. And then you have other power plants that only turn on every so often when demand is so high that they're needed. And then you other have other power plants that might sit there and just be idle, but then if they need to be ramped up very quickly, then they can turn on really quickly and supply that power to the grid or take it off the grid in order to match that supply and demand. Essentially, they're trying to forecast demand. They try to like plan and tell the power plants, okay, you know, we think we're going to need this much at this time. They plan it a week ahead, a day ahead, and then the hour before, they're like still monitoring it and all of that. So Okay, okay. And then how... How do they know? Like, I guess I just assumed that at your circuit box or at your your meter, yeah, yeah. that information is going in real time back to the utility. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, how, do, how does the utility company know how much power we're using? So that is changing as well. The utility company, you know, they have various sensors on the grid at different places. They'll know the voltage and the frequency of the grid at different locations. And that's what they're trying to control. It's not at the level of houses, Although this is where what's called the smart grid is having effects where people are putting in more sensors so that utility operators can operate the grid more smartly and and more efficiently. More precisely get the energy where it needs to go Mm -hmm. instead of just sort of wasting it, wasting power, or just it's there and someone will use it. So if you don't match supply and demand super closely, then you could essentially you're increasing the losses on the grid. So you're wasting a little bit of power. But more so, it's you might be using your resources suboptimally. So burning too much gas. Exactly. Or if you have wind and solar, that's something called curtailment, right? Yes. We're producing too much energy, and that's not good. Exactly. So curtailment means in the middle of the day, its sun is shining super hard. Solar is producing a lot of energy. Essentially, they're producing so much energy that it could be producing more energy than people are using. You might just have to turn the solar off because you you can't have that oversupply in the grid. Too much of a good thing. Well, it's a good thing that comes at the wrong time, right? Because then you want that energy during the night or you want the energy right in the evening when people get home, but the sun sets. So that's where batteries now have become so important for the California grid. So I guess to backtrack a little, around 2013, because of the legislature here, California Public Utilities Commission, the CPUC, they put out this huge mandate for grid batteries in California. They were essentially saying, in California, we're, we have so much renewables and we need to manage this somehow. We're going to install over a gigawatt of batteries in the next seven years or so. And that this, was this is crazy. all the way back in 2013. Yeah. They were saying, you know, by 2020, we're going to need to have all these batteries. Yeah. Essentially, California was saying, we're going to install more batteries in the next seven years on the grid here than there are in the world, multiples of that. And, you know, the reason people are so interested in batteries in particular for energy storage, because in a car, you're really constrained by your energy density of whatever you're trying to store. And so right, you, have you, need, to, you need to ramp up, you need to go on the freeway, right? And your house you isn't going power. on the freeway most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. There, there's not that many competitors for transportation. 
On the other hand, in the grid, there are all sorts of ways you can store energy. The biggest source historically has been pumped hydro storage. Right, so dams. Dams, exactly. And that is a great way to store energy because essentially if you already have you know, a lake that you can dam, you can pump water into the lake when you have excess energy and then you can let the water come back and spin a turbine when you need the energy. That's super low-cost energy storage and it lasts for so long. Now, you know, there are some disadvantages. Batteries can react faster than pumped hydro. So for certain applications where you want these like fast acting energy storage resources to help you manage those variations on the minute to 10 minute timeline, you could call that frequency regulation. Then batteries actually are really great for that because they can react so quickly. So you see this in a number of different places in the U.S. Um, actually, there was a huge battery that Tesla put in in Australia, the Hornsdale Power Reserve. It's 100 meg. I think it might still be the biggest battery in the world, you know, aimed at frequency regulation. The biggest battery. Do you, do you know like how, how big it is? Is it bigger? It's bigger than a bread box. It's like a factory. It's like a big, big okay, brick. Okay, so usually when you're getting to utility scale battery installations, you're thinking of on the level of shipping containers, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, imagine a shipping container that's a truck is driving on the highway or something. I think those generally can do about two megawatts. Okay. And like just roughly, just like a rule of thumb, how many homes is in a megawatt or like mm. what's a good way to think about electricity yeah well, what's like a typical house how many houses fit in a battery <laughs> <laughs> yeah so a, a house is about a kilowatt okay say on average so a megawatt is a thousand houses okay yeah. so you could put a thousand houses on one shipping container sized battery that's right okay yeah. and then if you're talking a hundred megawatts then you have a hundred of those shipping containers or 50 of those and then if you're talking a gigawatt that california has really already finished installing you're talking about another thousand times that. Okay, that's getting big. Yeah, <laughs> that's getting big. That's like a that's like a shipping container port, you know, for, yeah, for a small really, town at that yeah. point. So that's grid scale. The challenges, you know, you need to sometimes have power turn on a dime. You need to estimate it. There's different types. We kind of listed a few of the energy storage types. You know, hydro batteries. Are there any other energy storage types that you want to kind of highlight before we get into what is the future of batteries? I mean, there are there are a lot of different energy storage types. There's compressed air energy storage. You can do thermal storage. There's a new one that came out, hmm. Energy Vault, where they, they lift huge concrete blocks and stacking it up to basically store gravitational potential energy. Wow. Finally putting uh, gravity to work for us. You yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> so I, I really, I guess I want to emphasize that there's so many different ways you could store energy. And batteries really have just played out for two reasons. One you could put them anywhere. Hmm. So pumped hydro storage would be great if we had more lakes in the U.S. Or more rivers that we were willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. to the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so these energy storage facilities that require some kind of geologic asset, you can't put anywhere. You, you really have to find the right place. So a battery you could put anywhere. You mm. could make as many as mm. you want. And then secondly is cost. It, it's been interesting. Lithium-ion batteries come down in cost so much in recent years because the demand has been going up so much. So it's this classic case of, you know, as this industry has expanded, so at first it was consumer electronics, you know, laptops, computers, batteries, and then now into electric vehicles. Scooters, scooters vape pens, yes. you know, <laughs> toothbrushes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're everywhere. 
and and there have been engineering steady engineering advances along the way. Although I would say, you know, the lithium-ion batteries we use today are still very much like the batteries we used 20, 30 years ago. So the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was given last fall for lithium-ion batteries. It was given to three people: John Goodenough, M. Stanley Whittingham, and Akira Yoshino, for work that they did in the 1970s and 1980s. But you know, really, our batteries are pretty similar in the basic way that they're designed to those batteries from, you could call it the 1990s. Some of the materials are a little different, but the basic architecture is the same. So, how would you describe a battery to someone who? Maybe didn't pay very much attention in science class. What's like an easy way to think about a (laughs) battery? You know, how would you explain a battery to like a a child or, you know, a very busy person? Essentially, a battery is an electrochemical energy storage device. So that means that the energy is stored in chemical bonds and we convert that energy into and from electricity. So it's electrochemical. Now you can convert that energy to heat. Let's say you have two materials or two substances. Sodium and sulfur is pretty simple. There's a grid technology called a sodium-sulfur battery that uses those. So if you had sodium and sulfur and you just threw them together, you would essentially get a fire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, okay. Right? Because they want to react That's kind with of each a other. battery. <laughs> <laughs> right. They want to form these sodium polysulfides. And so there's that chemical energy when you throw them together and it just is releases heat. So how do you get that energy out, but you instead of getting heat, you get electricity? So the answer is sodium on one side of the battery, it's the negative, and sulfur goes on the other side of the battery, it's the positive. And in between them, you have some kind of membrane or separator that doesn't allow them to touch, but it does allow an ion to go from one side to the other. Just like one little fraction of the energy, just like one little bit. Yeah, you could essentially have as many ions as you want go across at a time. So you could drain it very slowly, or you could try to charge or discharge very rapidly. Now there are a ton of limitations to that. But just imagine a single sodium ion that crosses over this membrane, and now it gets to form the polysulfide on the other side. And that ion, it can go across, the charge is compensated by an electron that flows through the circuit. And so that electron we use as electricity, and the ion just goes from one side to the other of the battery. Kind of chauffeuring the electron through the party. Yeah. Okay, I think I, ha- I, think I have a metaphor that might be too simple, but you can tell me about that. So... Let's say you have a party with two really aggressive groups of people. And when they're put together, because they're just very different ideologically, maybe they like one group likes beer, another group likes, you know, some other party substance. They come together and they just explode. There's a chaos, there's rioting, it's like Woodstock. So you need okay, to have like sure. a buffer. You need like a bartender, you need like a manager, you need some way to kind of keep these sides apart. Yeah. But you still want them to interact. You yeah. still want them to have a good time. Yeah, so yeah. you kind of need like some kind of bouncer or somebody to kind of make sure you regulate, you know, who's coming in and coming out. And that's kind of how like a battery would be an explosion but there's this other medium that prevents that from happening and you just get like a little bit of energy at a time. Yes. I think we did it. I think we've (laughs) solved science communication. (laughs) (laughs) Explain batteries using nightclubs. Okay, I think we've we've given listeners enough. People have a rough idea of grids. People have a rough idea of batteries. Why are liquid metal flow batteries Mm -hmm. the future? Or one of the possible futures? Maybe the future. So I, I guess first let me back up to why are flow batteries interesting? So we talked about what the scale of batteries that you might want to put on the energy grid to... Thousands of shipping containers. Right, right. And so when you're thinking about batteries at that scale, you start to wonder, are lithium-ion batteries the best battery? 
because, you know, lithium-ion batteries, they're made in cells. So the batteries that are used in electric vehicles, they come in either very small cells or pouches. And then all of those are put together into packs and there's a put into modules. Essentially, like a six-pack of beer, like a can, six-pack, <laughs> yeah. case, truck. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to build, you know, however many of those batteries, you, you need to build that many cells and that many pouches. So mm. you get the economy of scale in the manufacturing facility, but the actual battery itself, you're just repeating it endlessly. And so instead, in a flow battery, it's a different architecture. And kind of the big difference is in a flow battery, you have your energy storage materials dissolved in a liquid or they're in a liquid form in somehow. In a lithium-ion battery, they're in solid forms, so lithiated graphite or uh, lithium metal oxide in our current technology. In a flow battery, you have these in liquid forms. And so what that means is then you can build huge tanks if you wanted to make a huge flow battery. Or you, you get a lot more flexibility in designing this very big battery that potentially has these economies of scale. And if you want to store a lot of energy, but maybe you want to store it over a long duration you want a battery mm, that backs mm. you up over weeks or something. So so right now, lithium-ion batteries have a, a limit on how long they can store the energy. Yes. Most lithium-ion batteries are kind of designed for, say, a two-hour to a four-hour duration. They're charged at a certain rate, and they can charge for two to four hours, and mm. then they're full, and then you can discharge for two to four hours. Mm. So this is good for a lot of applications, but for some applications in the future where you might have a grid that's so much solar and wind that now you're talking about longer duration fluctuations. Mm. You have more solar resources in one time of the year and less in the other time of the year. So batteries between like winter and summer yeah. or even, you know, peak of the sun, middle of the day. And then like you, we said earlier, people come home, they want to use power. That's, that's, that's more than four hours, right? The difference yeah. between that time period. Yeah, personally, I think it's really hard to make the economics work for that because then you're using this battery only once a year, you know, rather than every day. It's like your Christmas battery. (laughs) It better be super cheap for that. But, you know, this is what people are starting to think about. We're going to take a quick break. We've been talking about what are batteries? How do batteries work? What is the grid? How does the grid work? How do we listen to podcasts through electricity? So after we come back from that break, we're going to talk more about what Antonio is actually working on, what flow batteries are, and uh, how that's going to affect the future of, of our grid and of renewables and of our, you know, human society. All right. And we're back to the future ward. That's right. We're back to future ward. We're not back to the show. I tricked you. Ghost Island has moved from my coin back to future ward. Do you remember the metal tube? Do you remember... I think actually that's probably all you would know about Future Ward, but it's a cool co-working space. They sort their recycling. There's dogs now. One dog only has three legs. And there's a sound room, so I don't have to record in a hot metal tube anymore. Anyway, let's get back to the show. If you want to sponsor us, I can read an ad here for you. All right, let's get back to the show. And now we're back with Antonio. We're going to talk about his research. We're going to talk about the future of flow batteries, what a flow battery is, and how it might be similar or not similar to a Terminator. <laughs> okay, so so what are you working on? What's what's a flow battery? All right, so let me try to step you through my logic of... Why batteries matter. Right, why batteries matter. So when we're thinking about putting you know gigawatts of batteries on the electricity grid, then we have to start thinking about what is the cost of this to the grid. 
can it be economic for, you know, not only wealthy countries, but everywhere in the world to do this? And, you know, the current grid scale batteries, let's say they're something like $400 per kilowatt hour of energy installed. And at that level, if you're trying to store all of the solar energy from current solar plants in a battery, so you have kind of 100% backup, you're talking about two or three times the cost now. The battery is, is multiplying that solar cost by two to three times. Mm. So that's kind of like each home paying like $400 for that power, right? Because it was a kilowatt. Per, per kilowatt hour of storage capacity. Oh, per I would kilowatt say hour. Per okay, kilowatt so that's, hour. A, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. So if they use 24 kilowatt hours in a day, then there's something like one sixteenth of that. But any, anyway, it's... It's a lot. It makes it, renewables it's, more expensive. It's a lot. It, okay. it makes renewables a lot more expensive. And so the thing that we're all trying to research is how to make a battery for the grid that's much less expensive, not only half as expensive or one quarter, but like one-tenth as expensive, I mean. And that's really difficult. And lithium-ion is coming down in costs very rapidly, but it kind of has a materials floor to its costs that may not reach those levels. You just can't make lithium-ion exponentially cheaper. There's just sort of a limit in the materials and just the way they work and, you know, the stacking of all these batteries. Exactly. Is that that right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, people are looking to different types of batteries. And flow batteries are another big class of batteries that most people don't know about. But the main chemistry involved is called a vanadium flow battery. That sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like Wakanda's energy system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, I, I think they're cool. <laughs> vanadium is actually a very unique element. It's so unique that it is really the only one that you can use in these batteries. Now, Hmm. I'll try to explain really simply is in a vanadium battery, it has vanadium on both sides of the battery, Hmm. both on the negative side and the positive side. And it's because of this unique property of vanadium that it can exist in these four different oxidation states. There's not really any other element we have that can do this kind of chemistry in an aqueous environment. So it's just a flexible element that works in a liquid sort of form? Well, actually, vanadium flow batteries in particular and flow batteries in general, you could say they're intrinsically safer than lithium-ion batteries because they're aqueous-based. They're they're solutions. Hard to blow up when you're wet. When you're wet. Now, (laughs) you have other issues that now you're using very acidic solutions. So you have all this acid in a tank but you have less of a flammability risk. Mm. So do we have commercial vanadium batteries? Yes, yes. So this is a commercialized technology. Multiple companies make these. There are startups working on it and big companies. Actually, there's a installation that Ronke Power is working on, I think in collaboration with UET in the US, but they're making a 200 megawatt vanadium flow battery in China, mm. I think to come online sometime this year. So, you know, that will be, I think, the biggest battery in the world at that point, although there are other installations that are going to be larger as well that are being worked on. Okay, so stay tuned for vanadium batteries coming yeah. online. Yeah, so vanadium batteries are this amazing technology and, and it's being commercialized and being put on the grid, but also it has this issue where we don't think it can extrapolate out to a very low cost. And that actually one of the biggest issues here is just vanadium itself as the, the element and the mineral is yeah, Where do you find expensive. vanadium? You mine it. Um, From the earth somewhere, yeah. small quantities, it sounds like. Yeah, it's just expensive and it's the price itself is pretty volatile. I mean, most of the market goes to steel production. So flow batteries are a small fraction of that currently. But if you're talking about gigawatts of batteries, that's a lot of vanadium. And that cost of that element itself is a huge fraction of the cost of the vanadium flow mm-hmm. battery. And so so if you could switch to a 
different elements, that would be great. And and also, if you could change the battery in other ways, that would be great too. Another mm. so two kind of themes for us for how to make a next generation flow battery that could maybe have the potential to get to very low cost points is one elements that are very abundant and very inexpensive mm. and then two okay. is actually energy density um, because flow batteries as i mentioned they're aqueous solutions so that water actually takes up a huge amount of volume and so just like big big weight. tanks so yeah. just like so instead of having like big blocks <laughs> of all these lithium ion batteries we have big tanks of of, acid yes. kind of yes okay. and the tanks are much less energy dense than lithium ion maybe one tenth or one fifth so you need even more containers and tanks than you would of containers of lithium ion batteries and so we want high we want energy dense acid tanks basically <laughs> that are low cost yeah. and that cost comes from using an element that is abundant yeah Okay. And, you know, people will disagree with me on this, whether energy density is that important to cost. At the end, if you have something that's just dirt cheap and it's on the grid, then maybe it doesn't matter how energy dense it is. But my perspective is that energy density is always going to have an advantage and that when you're trying to get to costs that are this low, like even the cost of contain- the shipping container itself, the, just the, the enclosure at some point is going to matter have. Or or rural areas, right? Or mm-hmm. or islands or space constrained places mm-hmm. like Taiwan, where <laughs> you know you might not be able to have just all that space or just roads or yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah that, that 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 makes sense to me anyway. Yeah. So so what we're pursuing is a way to make higher energy density flow batteries out of abundant elements. We've done some research on using a liquid metal as one side of the battery, in particular sodium-potassium alloy. What is a liquid metal? I mean, when I think of liquid metal, I think of mercury, like in your thermometer, or I think of, you know, futuristic cyborg stuff. Like It, what's, how, it how... looks like that. Yeah, oh, okay. really, <laughs> it's, it's really cool. I mean, it's this shiny, reflective bead of metallic substance, but you can flow it around, you can push it around and uh, huh, play with wild. it. wild. Now, you want to do all this in an inert environment. We do it in an argon-filled glove box because they're extremely okay. reactive to So not in this water. room. Okay. Right. Not in this room, not yes. with our bare hands. No, do this, not is, do this, this is a sensitive thing. Okay. Do not do this at home. <laughs> and so that's liquid metals do come with some trade-offs. So that's one where it's very reactive and you'd have to design the safety of the system to be able to handle that. That being said, liquid metals are used industrially, uh, NAC, sodium potassium alloy. So we know how to use this. This is already regulated. It's not... It's not a crazy new material like, I guess, vanadium in this case. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not a it's not a crazy new material. Vanadium isn't isn't a crazy new material. I would say either. Um, <laughs> Just crazy new to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not as well known. Not to the scientists. Okay. So you work with these materials, and you're able to in this special environment with argon, mm-hmm. with this special noble gas, if it's I remember from gas. chemistry. That's right. And you're able to have this this liquid flow battery, and so you have these batteries working this yeah we've you- made we've made some devices in our lab it's an extremely small scale you know it's you were talking about active areas of one centimeter squared for example okay so this is a real tiny battery it's a tiny okay. battery right that for tiny homes okay. uh, <laughs> that's just a joke just a joke that'd be a very small home yeah. Right. yeah i mean we are still working on this technology there are a number of issues to be worked out we're working on some other ideas too you get into mixtures like how do you make your energy storage material, it could be a molecule, it could be a metal complex, it could be a molten salt in some way, but how do you make that into a liquid at lower temperatures 
um, we're really exploring the solution chemistry of this. Mm. And you know, once you start thinking about different things to use, there are just so many ways to do it. So I, I am excited about this space. I think I think for listeners, especially of this podcast. It's important to note that most battery breakthroughs in the news are really not <laughs> breakthroughs, right? Not breakthroughs in that they're not going to change things, or that they're just so early that you know your yeah. grandkids might be using these batteries. Uh, yeah, but I, I think it could be one of the two. It could be so early that you don't know, or it could be that it's a breakthrough in one area, but it's not going to change things because there's something else that's wrong with it that's mm. going to eliminate it. And that's the trick with batteries is you have to meet so many different requirements. You know, your cycle life, you want high power density, high energy density, you have cost, you have safety, calendar versus cycle life. I mean, there's just so many different parameters that a battery material has to meet that often research comes out, you know, we made a breakthrough in this thing, but actually, if you sacrifice one of these other parameters, then it's actually not that useful. So this, to me, you know, just relating it to garbage, this sounds a lot like recycling technologies. You see in the news all the time, oh, mm-hmm. we found a new way to recycle bottles and turn it into X, or we have this new way to make this chemical into Y, or oh, there are these worms that eat bottles. But that's never really the problem with recycling. We, we could figure out how to technically recycle almost everything. The mm-hmm. challenge is, is collection, right, and sorting mm-hmm. and, you know, the economics of it. And so it, it's kind of these similar, you yes. know, we, we live yeah. in a, it's, we live in a society, right? Yeah. So these technologies have to interface with that again. So I guess good tip for everyone. Next time you read about battery breakthroughs, you know, yeah. put, put on your skeptical hat <laughs> a little bit. The you know. So I'll say I personally take most battery breakthroughs with a huge grain of salt and look into the details myself. But at the same time, I am excited about the future of batteries because I, I think there are so many possibilities that there is something we can figure out, engineer, discover that would be a better battery. We just have to do that. And there are now a lot of people working on batteries. It's been a hot area and becoming increasingly hot since I've been working at Stanford. So, you know, I'm I'm optimistic, but it, it takes time and uh, it takes a lot of work. So for batteries, so for the future, I think the thing that I think most about and probably what other renewable energy advocates or activists think about is, you know, 100% renewable electricity. And I know that Stanford has done 100% renewable electricity work for, you know, the U.S., but then for the world as a whole. And I don't want to get too into the weeds about the models or the numbers, but something that you kind of hear from other people in the energy sector or just, you know, people who are rightfully skeptical is, how do you get 100% renewable electricity? You know, we don't have that technology yet. Like we talked about, you know, it'd be really expensive. Looking at the state of battery technology, looking at your own work, looking at what others are doing, how possible is it for batteries to support 100% renewable or even 100% you know, clean energy future? I think it's going to be really hard, uh, honestly. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because when you start to talk about 100% renewable, you have to, to be able to account for those times when once in 10 years, the wind goes down for a month or whatever it is. You sure, know? like 6.30 p.m. April 3rd, 2025. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that just that one time, it right. might fail. Yeah, and so if you wanted to make a reliable grid around that, you'd have to have a lot of backup storage. You have to have a lot of batteries. And so the cost of the battery would be so low to make it economical. You know, we're working to try to make lower-cost batteries, but to get it to that low cost, I think it's going to be really hard. You know, I think having goals is a good thing, and I think 100% is a great goal to have. But, you know, if we can get to 80% and then 
decarbonize the rest of our industry as well. You know, I think getting to 80% is going to be so much, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be a lot easier, easier than, than 100%. Um, so that's that's my practical standpoint. Okay. And then what should people know about the future of batteries? You know, it's not... Because for me, it was more about the framing of, is a renewable energy future possible? And it sounds like, yeah, pretty much, but maybe not 100% given what we have now. So what, what should people know about batteries? Should it affect how they vote? You know, what what's the impact? I'm excited about the future of batteries. There are a lot of different combinations that can still be engineered not only in my work with flow batteries, but in the lithium-ion space, there's a ton of different chemistries we didn't talk about that are being worked on both in academia and in industry. That being said, I think I think a good framework for the general public to think about this is that battery technologies are improving, but they run up against fundamental limits in energy density and just the thermodynamics of how much energy you can store in a chemical bond, how quickly you can move an ion. For example, we're not running up against, or haven't at least yet, run up in the semiconductor industry. So we've seen a a tremendous, amazing growth uh, in how many semiconductors you can put on a chip. That's computing, making computers faster over time. Exactly. For many decades, and perhaps they'll run into fundamental limits um, at some point. But I think in batteries, we're, we're already, you know, running up against those fundamental limits. And, and that's why, you know, people talk about going to different chemistries because we basically exhausted the limits of the current chemistries run. And whenever you go to a different chemistry, then you have to figure out so many things about how that chemistry works and how to make it work. It's, it is true that there, there will be breakthroughs. You know, you could say once people get a commercialized solid-state battery that'll be a breakthrough. So there will definitely be some kind of step changes in batteries at some point as we go to these different chemistries. But even so, th- those even are going to reach their fundamental limits. So there's there's a limit to how many of those step changes mm. could occur. And mm. There's no battery hero coming is what I'm hearing. Like we're not going to invent this battery that's just super good and just stores the energy perfectly and there's no losses and they're big and they're cheap and it's fine. They're all going to have different trade-offs is what it sounds like, which is kind of like renewables, right? Yeah. And then in that context, that kind of also a little bit of Thomas Malthus, a little bit of there are limits to growth. There are limits to what we can do in terms of the way we think about electricity. And then I guess the way I interpret that would be that not to say that we should just have lower quality lives or we should have degrowth or anything, but we could we should think about different ways of using electricity. You know, if we have a, a lower electricity demand, we can work within, you know, what are basically physical limits to sort of electricity. You know, is, is that, is that, yes. is that, does that kind of ring true? Yes, I absolutely agree. Even though I work on batteries for the grid and I think that's very important and it's something I'm trying to make a better technology for, I think we should try to address these issue of how do you get renewables onto the grid in a reliable manner? How do you solve the supply-demand issue? I think we should address it in all sorts of ways. And we shouldn't rely only on batteries to store all that energy. So things like demand response, creating more flexible grids, the smart grid, even people working on how do you use the already the batteries in your electric vehicles to help the grid mm, right. when it's needed. So every sort of way that we can make the grid work 
I think is very useful. Yes. Okay. So from a battery scientist, it's a package, it's a portfolio. We all we all gotta <laughs> right. work together. We're yes. not gonna we're not gonna just solve it at once, but there is room for hope. There are there are gonna be improvements. We're gonna see new technologies come online, and we shouldn't say, let's not pursue renewables because batteries aren't there yet. Yeah. There is there is room to grow in that space. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Antonio Bachlick, for speaking with us about batteries, about, you know, kind of forcing you to explain the grid, which is not easy without visuals, uh, talking about utility scale batteries, talking about the future for them, flow batteries, vanadium, a lot of really good information here. I think people are going to get a lot out of this episode. So thank you for taking the time and explaining. And uh, thanks for meeting with us. And let us know if you have one of those breakthroughs. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Thank you again. Thank you, Nate. I'm Nature Nate, and this has been the Waste Not, Why Not podcast. The interview was recorded in Stanford in a previous time period of Earth. And this part was recorded in Taipei, Taiwan in Future Ward. That's right. Ghost Island has moved to a new place. It's called Future Ward. I moved too, but nobody asked. Do you have a question for us? Email your voice recording at ask at wastenotwhynot.com. Someone did it. Pete Ford did it. You can too. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Give us a good rating. We were recently featured on Apple Podcasts' new and noteworthy category in Taiwan. So you know it really helps. Support us on Patreon. We need money. Sign up to our newsletter. We need clicks. We're Waste Not Why Not on Patreon and Substack and Waste Not Pod on Twitter. This has been a Ghost Island Media production. This episode was produced by Emily Y. Wu and myself, Nature Nate. Edited by Yu Chun Lai. Brain designed by Thomas Lee. And Angela Chow is our production assistant. Special thanks to Pick Collage for letting us stay in their apartment in Silicon Valley. It was a great pick pad. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Wow. Okay. This is weird. This is weird. Here's my horoscope. There's a damper on your emotions today that could leave you feeling like a pot of simmering water, Gemini. Just by knowing there's a lid on things, you're likely to heat up more quickly than usual. Try to hold your temper. A furious rage will get you nowhere. Concentrate your energy on getting your material affairs in order. Deal with finances, investments, and long-term security planning. Uh, the last part, I don't have any money. But, you know, the first part, I, I felt angry today. That's weird. Oh, really? Yeah, I just woke up. I was just like, Because I had the caffeine and I had the coffee and kind of okay. ujai breaths. Interesting. Just read my horoscope in the recorder. <laughs> Maybe that's the break. Nick kind of believes in horoscopes. <laughs> oh, you, he, you feel better now. Like, I feel fine now because I controlled my rage.